Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Us Podcast. My guest today is the one and only Mark Farner. Mark, good to have you on the podcast. Good to be here with you, brother Bob. So how's your health? I know you had a pacemaker put in back in 2012. So how are you today? I'm good. And as a matter of fact, uh, the pacemaker, you know, they're supposed to be good for seven to 10 years. And uh, my date is coming up October 23rd for the for the 10 year mark. And when I talked to the, uh, the gal at the hospital, you know, you put this little thing over your heart and it sends it through the cell phone and gives them a reading for the month, you know, and she says, it's uh, very extraordinary that you should have so much battery life left in your pacemaker, but you're good for a long time yet. <laughs> wow. I love hearing stuff like that, Bob. Don't we all? Yeah. So tell us the story of why you needed the pacemaker to begin with. Well, my wife and I were down in Detroit doing some promotions, and uh, we stayed at the Renaissance Center there, and she had gotten up uh, to do her thing in the morning. You know, she was in the bathroom washing her face and everything, and she said when she came out of the bathroom, my left arm had, was shot up into the air and and I was I started kind of flipping around I don't remember any of this buddy uh but I guess I looked like a wounded tuna you know flipping around <laughs> and she calls you know the front desk and has a uh, paramedics come up they put me on oxygen they put me in a ambulance and I I go over to to uh, Harper in Detroit and I'm in the emergency room on a, a gurney and uh, they got me hooked to an external pacemaker. And these three doctors, well, I, I think they were doctors. They had white coats on. <laughs> <laughs> they had their backs to me uh, and they were maybe six feet away from me. But they were looking at the machine, the external pacemaker, and it was in the corner. And 
as I look over, I'm glancing down at myself and I see these wires hooked to me. And all of a sudden, I feel like they just plugged me right straight into the wall. I was like, bam. And I hollered out to the top of my lungs. I went, what are you doing? And it was like, and and my wife heard me holler and she came running in from the hallway. Honey, what's the matter? And I said, those guys, are they just plugged me straight into the wall over there. I said, this is this is not, you know, I think I'm going to die if they do that again. They plugged, they did it again, and I died. Uh, yeah. And uh, so on, on that approach to come back in, into the bone suit, I didn't really want to make that trip, buddy. It was so good on the other side. It was just like being home. I mean, it was you know, it was more secure than your mother's womb, if you can imagine. Uh, and and I knew all things in that state of being. And uh, and but I could hear my wife. <laughs> Not now, you son of a bitch. She's beating on my chest. <laughs> and this guy, when I <laughs> when I reentered my bone suit, this the, the doctor standing next to her with the paddles in his hands. And uh, it ha- they hit me again with this voltage. I go again, and I'm in, I'm in heaven, man. I'm telling you, uh, it's the most wonderful place. And anyways, uh, make a long story short, I hear him telling her, we've got him back twice. There's no guarantee we get him a third time. We got to get him to OR stat. And when he said stat, it was like MASH 4077, scrambling around, people running, diving, you know, pushing me. I was doing 50 miles an hour down the hallway, and they put the pacemaker in. But what happened was, uh, you know, you got two parts to your your heart, the plumbing, of course, which is very important. But then you have the electrical. Well, my electrical had a short in it, Bob. They called it a bundle branch block. And my nerve branch did not receive the signal to squeeze the blood back up into the top part of the heart. So that's what happened to me. And and I, you know, now I have this pacemaker that samples ahead and it can see when I'm going to miss a beat and it'll throw it in there for me. <laughs> when it throws it in, do you feel something? Oh, yes, very much so. You go, oh. Thank you. <laughs> and how often does that happen? It doesn't happen very often. In fact, it happened more frequently 10 years ago when I first got it put in. I, I mean, it was happening quite frequently. I would notice every day. Now I go days without noticing. And is this hereditary or from living or just some people get a bad number? I believe it's hereditary, brother, because my grandfather my dad's dad died in his sleep and they didn't know what it was i mean this was you know back years and years ago and i think i might have picked something up from him wow that's quite a story so do you have to hold back in any activity or can you just live fine no in fact bob he said he told my wife you tell mark don't baby that thing you push that thing. You make it work. You, you know, take it to the limit. Uh, so I do. And on stage, I make sure that, uh, you know, 
I'm keeping it in good shape. And if I don't get to where I'm sweating, then just something is wrong. <laughs> now, frequently when people have these near death, or as you say, in your case, actual death experiences, when they come out of them, kind of changes their perspective in their life. Was your perspective changed at all? Yes. I was telling my wife for a few years prior to this adventure that I went on, I told her the thing that's wrong with mankind in general is debt consciousness. Um, I said, because once you're indebted to someone or beholden to someone or something, you, uh, you're compromised. You can't really be free in your expression and your relationship with that person or thing, whatever it is that's, that you're in debt to. And on my re-entry into my bone suit that last time, Bob, I had such a confirmation of that whole thing. And what the Bible is talking about when Jesus is saying, oh, no man, anything except to love him. You know, uh, that was the state of mind that he was in. And I'm sure that's why there was all the miracles, because when you're indebted to anyone or anything, uh, you're you're cutting yourself short. And I I found out on on that reentry that, you know, and on the other side, I mean, you know, all things immediately, you know, I even had on that side of the fence, I had the purpose. I knew what the purpose of these earth years were. I mean, I knew what it was. And on this side, I couldn't tell you. Uh, I'm thinking maybe it's like plugging a 110 fan into 220. It would just smoke you. I mean, your brain is only built for so much information. But the debt consciousness as not just money debt, that's certainly part of it. But what if you don't fulfill the expectations of some somebody, some people? What if it was somebody in your family and they call one of the siblings or somebody else and they tell them this story of how now you're indebted to them? You know, and then they call you and you're put on the shit list and and you're in debt uh, because of this situation. And it's all a misconception because people aren't, people aren't uh, coming from that point of view. They're not coming from the love that's in their heart and trying to find the love in everybody else. They are coming from a place of defense and coming from a place of being offended. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's a debt laden world that we are living in. We are moved from our place of comfort by this silly four-letter word, D-E-B-T. Holy crap, man. Let's go down to the drugstore and buy a box and then and dump it on a table and look at it. Or better yet, let's get a 10-yard dump truck full of it and have them dump it in our front yard so we can wade in this stuff and really get familiar with it. Because even the indebtedness of regret we can set ourselves free from but we are the only ones who can set ourselves free from this 
and people don't realize this. But I, that's what I was, that was revealed to me. And I was, that was confirmed in me on that last re-entry. I call it the re-entry into this bone suit. And I've been sharing that experience with people who are profoundly jolted by this notion of being debt free and that we are the ones who control what we will accept as debt and uh, and how not to accept any debt. I think once you get that going and realize who you are in this, this simplistic form, this human form, that then we can see love. Then we can experience love because, uh, you know, that's where love lives, buddy. Can you give me an example or two of how you changed your life relative to this debt insight? Yes, I look at other people that prior to the revelation that I've had, brother, I may have held them responsible for actions that that they took that had a, a bad uh, reflection on me or had a bad influence on me or, you know, left, might have left me uh, angry. And I just can't go there anymore. I can't go there because people are so precious and we don't let ourselves, we don't allow that tenderness to come through or to, to uh, think that it could be in another person to consider that uh, in someone who's, you know, maybe... Uh, what if alcohol was involved and, and one of your relatives said something to you that was just off the wall? You know, it's, it has happened with me. And since the, the revelation that I've had, I can't hold that person in debt for that, you know, for the words, for that experience that I went through with them. I just have to let it go. And, it's like a lot of people have asked me about, you know, the relationship that I had with the other two members of the band. And, uh, you know, doesn't that piss you off? Well, no, it doesn't piss me off. It makes me feel sorry for somebody who can't be uh, truthful with the audience, with our fans. Uh, but I... I refuse to let it piss me off because, you know, that would keep me, that would put me in some kind of uh, uh, a frame, uh, a reference to debt consciousness. And I don't want any more debt consciousness. In fact, every day, Brother Bob, before my feet swing out and get put, put on the floor, I lay in the bed. And I pray to the creator and ask to be shown where there's any more anchors in my soul here so that I can take these bolt cutters that I have and cut that chain to that anchor and get set free. Because I want to be completely free before I leave this earth. 
And I think even in that state of mind, if we can all head that way, we'll be able to see some miracles before we go. What is the truth that your two other original band members are holding back from the public? They advertise themselves as Grand Funk. It, uh, they have a legal right to do that because uh, the drummer came to me one night after a gig we did up in California telling me, and this is after a party, you know, you know, you had a few beers or have some drinks or something. Go back to the hotel room. He comes to my hotel room, says, hey, Mark, we, we all need to sign the individual ownership of the trademark into the corporation where it'll have this protective umbrella. And he had gone to law school and I didn't finish high school. And I thought, well, he's looking out for the best interest of the band. And I said, well, you know, I thought to myself, yeah, okay, I'll do that. He says, good, I'll go to my room and get the papers. And I'm thinking, as he left, I'm thinking, why the hell didn't he just bring the papers with him? But it didn't dawn on me that I was being set up. Uh, and so when he came back, I signed the papers. And so my ownership, my one-third ownership of the, the uh, trademark, which is the name Grand Funk Railroad, uh, got put into the corporation where I found out uh, they had fired me as an officer. I was like uh, the vice president. Um, and I'm no longer an officer. I no longer have any say-so in a corporation with three people. When you got two of them against you, it's just even even though I wrote 92% of the music and sang, you know, and, and did all the stuff, they can go out with my music and make a living and claim that they are Grand Funk Railroad legally because of that mistake that I made. But I can't hold them responsible, even though that's a shitty thing to do, I'm telling you. Um, I can't hold them responsible for that because I have to view that in my current state of mind as just them being off their path. But if they were honest with people, they would have said Grand Funk revisited or something to this uh, degree, just like uh, Creedence Clearwater. You know, Fogarty's not with them. Uh, and they had this, a spat. I don't even know what it was about. I didn't read on it. I just knew that there was something going on between them and that legally that there was something to, you know, at least they said, Credence Clearwater revisited, which gave the fans a heads up. Uh, I think the other two guys in the band, if they would have said Grand Funk revisited, that would have given them a, a point of, uh, you know, some validity with the fans. And, you know, uh, they could have looked in online and see, well, what's this about? But no, they just go out and they don't tell the audience, there's no way that they can uh, say to the audience or advertise that the guy who wrote and sang 92% of the music is no longer in the band. What was the impetus? Obviously, they had this all planned out. They wanted you to sign the document. They wanted to get rid of you as an officer. What was going on that they wanted to do that at that time? I don't really, I, I can only say that it has to be 
a personal grudge of some sort, some kind of vendetta. Uh, Mel Shocker, the bass player, and I have been friends. I mean, we went to school together. We we jammed together. We we uh, rode dirt bikes together, and uh, and we smoked pot together as kids. I mean, you know. Uh, and I just could never understand how Mel uh, could have gone along with Don on that and and committed himself to it. But then, just this year, uh, I was after we started, you know, doing a few more gigs. I was in the Delta Club in Detroit, and Mel, the bass player was in there and I didn't know he was in there. I was just, I had my headphones on and I'm over there listening to some music I've been working on with Mark Slaughter. And, uh, and I see Mel come walking around a corner and he, he looks at me and he puts his arms out, you know? So I stand up, I give him a hug and he just says to me, you know, Mark, he says, I really love what you do. I really love who you are. You're the greatest. He says, and brother, I just had to do what I had to do. And at that moment, I looked at him and I just felt so sorry for this kid that he was an only child and his mom and dad died. And uh, he went through some stuff. His his wife died. He's been through a lot. And I can't hold him uh, responsible, um, you know, for the two of them. Uh, going out and claiming to be the band, you know, Grand Funk, and not warning or not at least telling somebody. So I looked him in the eyes and I told him, I said, you know, I thought in my heart that that was probably, uh, you know, what was going on, that this, it's something that you had to do because, you know, with everything that you have been through and, and the things... Uh, you know, that, that all your bills don't go away when things like this happen and you become very aware. And I said, uh, I understand, Melvin. And uh, I just, I said, I forgive you for that. And he gave me a big hug. And that was, it was like, man, that was so good, dude. Uh, just to know that that's how he felt. I can't. I can't say that, you know, because of that, the band is going to get back together. I think I had been trying to put the band back together for 23 years because I realized uh, when the Beatles were together and I was, you know, I wanted them to go back on the road so I could see them live, man. I'm a, a Beatle fan and I'm thinking, man, those all four of them guys are still sucking air. Why can't they just bury the hatchet and do it for us? Do it for the fans that bought all those records, you know? And so putting myself in those shoes, uh, I kept petitioning those guys to do it for the fans, to do it for the sake of our fans. And I kept hearing people say, yeah, Don said, uh, Never say never. They they asked him in an interview if he'd ever get back together with with you and if the original band would ever go out. 
And uh, he says, never say never, but that's just easy to say. But when you, when you feel the, you know, the virility, the, and when you feel that hatred, <laughs> uh, like when I, when I uh, went out as Mark Farner's American band, I got a trademark. I did it legally through lawyers. Uh, they sued me and it cost us a lot of money. Not only did it cost me to pay my attorneys, uh, one from California, one from Michigan, because it was a Michigan corporation, uh, and I had to pay one third of their attorneys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, brother. But I got to let all that go. <laughs> you know, I cannot allow that to eat my lunch. That's my power, Brother Bob, and I will use it in the manner which I choose. Do you have any idea what Don's beef with you is? Have not a clue. I really don't have a clue. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. 
basically everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go sideways here. How do you know Mark Slaughter? Mark Slaughter. We did a a rock and roll fantasy camp years ago. And uh, and Mark is, is, uh, he's part Cherokee. I'm part Cherokee. So just on that basis alone, we have something in common that not a lot of people do and that we're musicians in the rock and roll field that just gave us uh, a head start on our friendship and our brotherhood Uh, and we did the Howard Stern show while we were in New York City and it's recorded it's on YouTube now Uh, but we had Kip Winger on bass Sandy Gennaro uh, on drums, Teddy Zigzag on the keyboards, um, Mark Slaughter on guitar, and Bruce Kulick, who now plays guitar with Don and Mel. He was on the acoustic guitar. But we were all doing rock and roll fantasy camp for David Fishoff. And uh, and we did a we did I'm Your Captain. And I was so impressed by those guys. They made it sound believable because all those guys told me how much they loved me and how much they appreciated that song in particular because it influenced them as young musicians. And I'm, I'm standing there at the microphone singing the, the, uh, in the chorus, and then and then when we go to the bridge, am I in my cabin dreaming? And I'm listening over, and there's Mark singing the high part, and he is hitting it dead nuts, buddy. I mean, seriously, it gave me the chills, and I thought, wow, we're doing this. <laughs> I mean, this is really coming off good for a, for just setting up a couple of amps in a in a studio up at Stern's place, and. Uh, so after that, Mark and I kept in touch with each other. And Mark sent me a copy of some of the music that he had been working on. And I said, man, uh, that some of that stuff is really speaking to me. I said, the, the mix you have on that stuff, uh, you've really got the separation where you can hear all the instruments and the vocals. Uh, he's got a song halfway there. Oh my God, the, it's beautiful. And uh, I said, man, uh, I encourage you and I want to, you know, I'm sending you kudos on on the sound that you got. He says, well, I want to do something with you. He says, I've got this stuff. I can make your music sound just as good as this, if not better. Uh, he says, because I'm always learning. And so I said, you know something, I'm going to take you up on that because I've got a, a song that my son Jesse told me uh, before he died. He said, Dad, that song, he says, there's two songs that really stick out to me. He says, that one that you, and he starts 
humming it to me and I and I go, oh yeah, you really like that song? He says, yeah. He says, uh, and it, it's a hit. He says, I, I believe that's a hit song. I just feel it in my heart. And uh, so the, the one song titled Anymore, Slaughter helped me finish because we, we co-wrote it. I had the initial idea, the chorus, the first verse. The second verse, though, he really came through and it came through with uh, a shining light of forgiveness. And it is forgiveness for the other guys for doing what they did and what they do. Uh, and it and it has a message. It carries that that love message through it. And I think that's what Jesse was hearing because uh, he was definitely into the love, especially in his latter years. I'm proud to be working with him. Why don't you tell us a story of Jesse who had a tragic accident and then tragically passed? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because not everybody knows. Yeah. Jesse, back in 2010, was on a camping trip with his buddies, and there was a bunch of I call them kids. I mean, he's my kid, <laughs> but, uh, you know, 20 some year old and the, they were camping out at this lake and it was the 4th of July weekend. And Jesse told me in the, uh, emergency room when we went to, up there to, to, you know, we found out he was hurt. We went to the emergency room at the hospital where the the ambulance had brought him. And he told me, he said, Dad, I, I drank too much and tried to do something stupid. He says everybody was doing these backflips off the picnic table. He says, and I just didn't land it. He said, too much beer, Dad. And at that time, he could still move his, his arms. He was paralyzed from his waist down. But... Uh, the doctor told us, the surgeon said, he's going to lose the use of his limbs too because he was laying in the back of a pickup truck for 11 hours. He didn't want to bring the police into it or an ambulance out there because he didn't want to ruin all of these kids camping out and having a good time. So they he just said, just lay me in the back of that pickup truck and I'll sober up and get better and whatever. If he could have gotten to the hospital within the first four hours, there's a window of opportunity where they could have injected uh, a steroid right at the point of the injury and arrested the edema that actually is what took his arms away from him and the use of his arms, and the only he only had the use of his head. I mean, he could move his neck around, and he drove his wheelchair with his mouth. It was a sip and puff system, and he was real good at it. As a matter of fact, some of his friends took the sip and puff system and attached it to a remote control device where he could actually run these four-wheel drive electric models and uh he had a 
a boat that would do like 80 miles an hour on the water down here and and people would just gather around him to, to see him run this stuff because he was really good at it and he took uh he took a first place in Traverse City where they were having these competitions with all these people and when people looked around and saw this kid driving this truck with his mouth you know he was pretty good at it um uh, he was really blessed but his condition kept going down and and the doctor told us he said it's like a limb on a tree when when it gets crushed like that the life just starts leaving it and he says he told us there's there'll be uh you know kidney troubles there'll be internal organ troubles that that you just can't do anything about uh, because that's what happens at this point. And so we we had him here at our house, and my wife, Lisa, God bless her heart, uh, she took care of him most of the time, but uh, then we had help from uh, people that would, nurses and people that were paid by the state to come in and help and give her a break because it's really strenuous for one person i mean it's you can't imagine and you have to do things like for a quadriplegic who's on life support uh you got to roll them up on their side and in order for them to take a shit you got to stick your finger up in there and stimulate that and then you got to catch it as it's coming out it's it's a very uh humilifying experience for him and when I volunteered you know I said Lisa I, let me do part of this let me and he looks at me he says dad you're not sticking your big finger in my ass <laughs> <laughs> so anyways uh his his condition got you know worse and worse and then in 2018 he passed, and we know that he's whole now. We know that, uh, you know, from my experience of leaving, you know, exiting the bone suit and coming back, I know he's whole, and I know that as soon as he made the exit from the bone suit, that he was set free. And uh, we miss him like crazy. I got a picture that pops up every time I turn on my computer. There's Jesse and his dog. Him with his laying in bed with his trach. He had a tracheotomy and he had his life support. But he never lost his grin. He never lost his love for life and uh, and his friends. And we have a memorial out here on our farm for him and his friends come over and they go back to the memorial and they leave little bunches of flowers or a, a pint of Jack Daniels. <laughs> I mean, you know, so you never know what's going to be left at the, the memorial. But uh, his love will never leave them. I mean, he was that kind of guy. He just, he was real. And, uh, and we miss him like crazy, but uh, Lisa and I have definitely learned 
some uh, valuable, valuable lessons through all of this. And it's just uh, to reiterate that love, you know. I mean, we, we get here in the form of this little infant and we uh, we just hold that. I feel, you know, the love in a little kid, the, the, the energy. And so we nurture them because, you know, it's our instinct, our human instinct to care, care for this little baby. But we're holding that love. That's really who we are in our heart, you know, is that that bundle of love, that energy that comes from the great beyond. And we have learned how to look at people with eyes that see that, no matter what other kind of physical representation there might be, or what kind of words we come out of the mouths of people, we always look in and see that love and and you know know that all that person needs is to to realign with it now do you have other kids yes i have two other children two other boys with lisa and then i have two other boys with two other women okay well let's stop here for a second how many times you've been married twice when did you get married the first time how old were you 22 and what motivated you to get married i just felt like it was time because i i felt like i was in love with this girl and uh i wanted to be i wanted to um at that point you know i mean i started in grand funk when i was 20 i'd i'd been to other countries, I've been on big tours. I, you know, sold out Shea Stadium uh, with my music, and uh, this was in and that was seventy one. So in seventy two, it was like I I felt like I wanted to somehow put down uh, the beginning of a permanent commitment, but. As life goes, uh, both parties didn't see it that way. <laughs> and so uh, it was, uh, I think, three years later, we were divorced. And I said, man, I am never going to get married again. Forget about this. Um, we did not have any children. My first wife and I did not have any children. My oldest son, Joey, came from a relationship I had with my oldest sister's girlfriend. <laughs> yep. And, uh, and dude, I didn't even orgasm. It was a one-time thing. And it was just, it was just off the wall. But it was enough to get her pregnant. Uh, there was enough of the seed that got through even without my experiencing anything like that. And Joey and I are very good friends. He's a musician. He's out, lives in Detroit and he's out doing gigs all the time. He's a good songwriter, good singer. He's got, uh, he's got talent and, uh, 
his wife and him come up and we, you know, we eat, we have barbecues, we talk, we jam. And uh, I go down there and uh, his house, he's got a, his stuff set up in the basement. He's got a nice recording thing set up. And so uh, I have a good relationship with him. When was he born? Before or after your first marriage? Before. Okay. So that's one son. Yes. And then after I was divorced uh, from my first marriage, we were on the road and Wet Willie was the opening act for the Grand Funk Tour. Um, it was uh, when the Locomotion was a number one hit. Uh, and and the uh, the gals from Wet Willie, uh, they said, you know what? We, we want to come out there and sing the backgrounds for Locomotion with you guys. In fact, the whole band wants to come out. We said, man, that would be great, you know, because we used to do it and, and just as like the last song before our encore. And so Wet Willie would all come out on the stage. And, and I got to very friendly with Donna, uh, Donna Hall, who was one of the singers. And uh, there was Jack Hall and Jimmy Hall. Jimmy Hall was the lead singer and Jack, the bass player. But uh, Donna moved in with me and... I wasn't thinking about marriage or anything. Uh, I just having a relationship. And, uh, and then I met Lisa, my wife that I'm married to uh, currently and forevermore, 44 years now. Um, and man, I knew as soon as I saw her, as soon as I heard her voice, as soon as I, I was around her, that it was like, oh my God. And Donna came to me and she said, Mark, I see what's between you and Lisa. I, I can see it. Uh, you'd have to be blind not to see it. And she said, and I'm going to bow out of your life and I'm going to go back home. I said, oh, are you kidding me? I said, I I feel bad. She said, don't feel bad. She says, I, I love Lisa and I love you. She says, and I don't want to be, I don't want to hold you back from anything that that's this precious and uh she didn't know she was pregnant moved home back to mobile alabama and her mother bb god rest her soul called me out of the blue uh and said mark my daughter is pregnant with your baby and i went what and she says, no, no, don't freak out. She says, don't freak out. We're not mad. There's nothing. You know, you guys didn't know. She didn't know when she left and you didn't know. So uh, I just want you to know that we're going to take good care of this baby. And that, she, that we'll always love you. And that's what kind of relationship I have with the whole family including my son, Adam, who came out on the road with Donna. Uh, Wet Willie opened for us again down in New Orleans. And uh, and Donna had Adam with her. And it was the first time I met him. And I had my son, Jason, with me. And so Adam and Jason got together. 
and they are still, you know, there's, there's, there's blood and there's no kind of uh, questioning about that relationship at all. And in fact, we all went to uh, Mexico together before Jesse was hurt and, uh, and had a great time together. And, you know, those memories, it's great to have those memories because they're built on, it's just always a reminder of the love that has always kept us together and has always uh, found its way through any hurt and always uh, made the glue that that keeps us stuck on each other. What are Adam and Jason up to? Jason is working at a shoe store doing good he's he he makes good money he does he works on a commission as well as this and he does things on the side where he's he's got good money coming in he he lives on his own in an apartment and adam works uh, he's a chef down in mobile alabama and isaac and sarah uh my grandchildren uh he takes them on the weekends and his and his ex-wife uh gets them you know through the week but uh he's doing good he you know he's uh it's just to have a job and and keep holding down the fort at this point in life in this country is really saying something but they're not the kind of people that would set back and say, I'm not going to work. I'll let the government support me. You know, uh, they're not that kind of people. And I'm proud of that. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, you're really mellow, understanding, and loving. What were you like when you were a teenager and then in your 20s at the height of Grand Funk Railroad? I was very uh, grateful for the experience. You know, when I wrote Closer to Home, I'm Your Captain, I prayed for that song. I always say my prayers. I, I always pray. I pray every day. And at night before I go to sleep, I pray. And I said, my, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And then I blessed all my aunts and uncles and cousins and grandmas and grandpas. And, you know, and I put a PS on the end of the prayer. And I said, God, would you please give me a song that would reach and touch the hearts of those you want to get to? And I got up in the middle of the night and I wrote words, but I'm always getting up writing words. I didn't know it was a song. It could have been just a, a poem as far, you know. And, and when I wrote it, Bob, I was I was in a state of mind that was halfway between heaven and earth. I was not in a totally conscious uh, state. And somehow I knew that if I went back to the top of the page and started reading the words again, it would stop. So I kept writing, I kept writing, and I kept writing, and I got through the whole thing, and I'm still in this frame of mind, not completely... uh, cognizant uh, consciously and I, I lay down the steno pad and the paper you know and the pencil and I slip back under the sheets and I go to sleep and I get up in the morning and I have coffee sitting on the table I'm looking at my horses out in the pasture and I've got a George Washburn flat top an acoustic guitar sitting in the kitchen in a stand and I grab it and I start playing and I went, wow, where the hell did that come from? And uh, it's like, and then I grabbed a, this this inversion of a C chord that just, it just spoke to me in such a way. It was like, man, and I'm looking at that chord and I'm thinking, man, I can't forget this, this chord right here. And I'm looking at it. And then I thought, oh, the words, maybe that's a song, maybe that's a song. So I go in and I grab the lyrics and bring them out, put them on the table. 
I push the button on my cassette recorder and I start playing it. Everybody listen to me. You know, it just started coming. And I took the cassette recorder to rehearsal that day. And I played it for the guys and and they said, man, Farner, that song's a hit. That song's a hit, man. So uh, they were right. And it's a hit with a lot of people, but especially with our military. And back when that song came out, it was during the Vietnam era. And a lot of our brothers and sisters were a long way from home. But they wanted to be where I was. And so when the Vietnam Veterans of America got a hold of my management in 2005, they asked me if I'd come and play the, uh, the, at the memorial, at the, uh, at the wall. And it was a 25th anniversary uh, ceremony. Then I said, well, rather than to just bring my guitar, I said, are you guys going to have a stage set up and lights and, you know, oh yeah, we got a PA system and everything. I said, the whole band will come. We will put a show on, a full show for the Vietnam veterans there and we'll include the song that they love. And we did. And of course, we didn't charge them at all. I mean, uh, God, how could you? And uh, it was 36 degrees, Bob. It was 36. And we were warming our hands up on the light bulbs that were in this trailer <laughs> so that we could play our instruments when we got out there. And when it came time to play I'm Your Captain, Closer to Home, man, I looked out and there was not a dry eye anyplace. And not only our American brothers and sisters, but our Canadian brothers and sisters who are Vietnam veterans were in the crowd. And I had a very difficult time trying to sing because I was so choked up. It felt like I had a softball in my neck, but it was with all this appreciation and the emotional connection that I was making with this audience. Oh my God. Uh, the words came back to me. Uh, for those you, you want to get to. And, uh, and those words got to those brothers and sisters. And, and that's, uh, that's what, uh, keeps me going today. I, I always dedicate that song when we get to it and said, I always dedicate it to our troops and to our veterans. And just to promise we would never forget them. We appreciate them so much. They are kids following orders. They didn't start the damn wars. They're just kids following orders. Now, back in that era, the Vietnam War era, it was a tumultuous time and there was the draft. How did you deal with the draft? I was physically 
disqualified. I got a 4F. I had some things uh, in my duodenal tract and uh, some things that were, you know, just were wrong with me. And when I went down for my physical to Detroit, they took me out of the line. We're all, you know, marching along with our clothes in our hands and our skivvies on. And they came over to me and they said, uh, we want you to go over to this building uh, at noon and uh, they'll do the, you know, finish the examination over there. Well, what had happened, part of this examination is the guy in front of me, when they, when they're taking a blood draw, uh, he, he lays his arm over the top of this board. And uh, when they hit him, there was blood that just kind of comes shooting out. And, and it just made me sick to my stomach, man, because I hate needles. I just, I would have made a bad drug addict, but I got up there and I, I went to put my arm over the board. And that's the last thing I remember. Bam. I was gone. I was out cold. I passed out from that experience and I woke up on this cot and, uh, you know, that they had already taken the, the blood, uh, when I was out and they had did, you know, some more other examinations and she, the, the gal says, well, you need to go over uh, at this building and, and they'll finish over there. So I went over and talked to some people and they, they said, uh, we're, you're not physically fit. You're not fit for military service. And I'm thinking, well, I guess it's, it's my, uh, I'll stay home and serve with my music. You know, that was my attitude. Okay. What's so special about Michigan and the music? You've certainly been all over the country. Michigan, known for hard rock, certain other things, certainly Motown music. What is it about Michigan? I believe it is the fact that we had all of these auto factories up here, Bob, that drew people uh, like my mother's family from Leechville, Arkansas. When she was 16 years old, she moved to Flint, Michigan. Uh, all of the you know, Grandpa Cot and Uncle Woody, Uncle Brian, uh, the whole, everybody and their, you know, cousins came north to get these high-paying auto factory jobs. Well, they brought their instruments with them as well. And every Sunday, either at our house on Davison Road, my mom and dad's, or at my Aunt Dorothy's house on Norma Decourt, there would be a jam session. And all of the kin would come and bring fiddles, banjos, guitars, uh, and play music and sing all of these old, uh, you know, it's, uh, I guess, country uh, roots and uh, so little gospel in there. Um, but the women would sing and it was like, oh, my God, I would just look up as this little kid. I would never forget thinking these these ladies are actually angels <laughs> singing because the it was so beautiful it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard and uh, and my mother could sing so good 
In fact, everybody in the family could sing. And it was always a good, you know, good time. And we either had southern fried chicken with those hockey puck biscuit, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, or sloppy joes. It was one or the other. Uh, but the, the chicken and dumplings, man, that was my favorite because I used to love those doughy uh, dumplings. Uh, and and just uh, everybody taking a break to eat, but then they'd return back to the instruments and get to playing. And it was just, we spent hours every Sunday doing that. So it was not just in our house, but everybody around Flint and I'm sure around Detroit and Pontiac and all the, the uh, satellite cities that, that had automotive-related, uh, you know, factories and things, uh, AC, uh, AC, Delco, Turnsteads, uh, Fisher Body. You know, my mother was the first woman in the United States to weld on Sherman tanks at Fisher Body in Flint, Michigan. And my dad was a tank driver in the 7th Armored Division and returned home with four bronze stars. He was in four major battles, and a lot of tank drivers didn't get to see a second one, brother. So we were were very blessed, but uh, knew a lot of other, you know, people that, that loved to play music. And I think because of the North and South thing, my dad, he blew saxophone and played guitar, but he was born and raised in Flint, Michigan. And... And just the love that we had, it it just, it came out. Uh, and the kids, you know, of those people, myself included, we didn't want to be in the shop. We wanted to do something else. We, you know, we saw that they were making good money and providing for the family and ha- everybody had two cars and a boat and a nice house. Uh, but we wanted something else. And so... Uh, you know, MC5 came out, uh, Iggy and the Stooges, uh, the Rationals, Scott Richard Case, Amboy Dukes, a lot of these bands. Uh, and we started hearing the sound that was being generated. And uh, so when uh, the band that Don and Brewer and I were in broke up, I told Brewer, I said, we need to start a three piece, man. Um, just a three-piece band and, and see what happens. And, and that's when we heard uh, Mel Shocker at, uh, in Bay City. He was playing with Question Mark and the Mysterious. And when they took a break and Mel came walking out, we said, hey, man, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Would you like to join a three-piece band? And he, of course, Mel and I had, like I said, we smoked dope together back when we were kids. Uh, he said, man, I am so ready to leave this band. This is perfect timing. So Grand Funk started the next week at the Flint Federation of Musicians, the hall on Averill Street in Flint. And uh, we started three-piece. You, you can imagine, uh, I had some uh, guitar, of course, uh, electric guitar, and it's amp that this guy was letting me use, this West. It was a West Fillmore amp with two 15-inch speakers. And it sounded so good, especially when I would hit that Jimi Hendrix fuzz tone and start, ah, ah, you know, just really. Uh, I remember Hank Geyer coming out and saying, you boys, turn that stuff down. We can't even hear the phones ring in here. 
<laughs> but uh, there was a lot of us, uh, you know, Alice Cooper came out of Flint, or not out of Flint, but out of Michigan. Uh, Glenn Fry, uh, a lot of, there was a lot of bands, you know, that, that just came out because of the North and South uh, reunion that we had in there. And it was like a, it was a family. There was, in the North, you didn't have the uh, discrimination that you had in the South. Uh, I had black friends. We hung out together. Uh, it was it was totally different when you hit the Michigan state line. It was like, man, there was a bunch of friendly people, and it didn't matter what color you were. It didn't matter what nationality you were. Uh, if you were a working man or a working gal, uh, then you were you were part of the family, and and that's. Uh, I guess that's what we, you know, the the music, we call it assembly line rock and roll, just because of uh, the nature of where it came from. We are the kids of those who work those assembly lines. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. How many kids in the family growing up? What kind of kid were you? Popular, unpopular, troublemaker, not troublemaker, good student, bad student? In my family, there were six kids, but my mother lost two sets of twins and three singles. You know, uh, she was bound and determined (laughs) to have kids. And when my dad died, I was nine years old and there were four of us in the family. My stepdad, Reginald Russell Fortune, what a great guy. He married my mother a couple of years after my dad died. And she lost a baby with him and then had two, my sister Julie and my brother Jimmy, God rest Jimmy's soul. And we never looked at each other as um, half this or half that or stepchildren or, you know, I called Reginald. His his brother couldn't say Reginald. So when they were small, he called him Pedge. So we called him. Uh, Pedge, and I called him dad because I want him to know that uh, I accepted him as that role in our family. And my brother Ricky is a guitar player, hell of a guitar player. Uh, my sisters all sing. they all good singers. And uh, they're still sucking air and you know, except for Jimmy, and he had a stroke, and we miss him. And uh, and Pedge, he died. He had a uh, stroke as well. I mean, but later in the years, and uh, and we miss him, but we're still uh, sucking air and and proud to be family. And you were growing up, going to school, go to public school, parochial school, have a lot of friends. Were you good or bad in school? Public school. Had a lot of friends. And once the music started, when I was 15 years old, once I started playing guitar, it kind of really slid downhill for me. Because <laughs> <laughs> I I thought, I'm, I don't want to do anything but play music. Uh, when I would go out and play music with 
whoever it was, I would play with these guys, those guys. I, I had several different groups that I would go out with and we would pass the hat to get enough gas money to get home. That's all we really were concerned about was just getting back home. So we, we were having a good time. And I didn't realize at the time, but it was learning the chops. It was learning to belt out those songs and learning that when I would hit those high notes, hey, you know, get up there, uh, people really would turn their heads around. So I would visit that more often <laughs> even, you know, just to get some heads turning. And uh, when in, in school, in high school, um, I went to Kersley High. It was a class B school and uh, there was a Catholic school down the road that it was Holy Rosary and at lunch hour um, these Holy Rosary students would come up and finish the day at the high school they started the morning at Holy Rosary and then they came up and I wasn't playing football at this time because I had received some injuries and the doctor told my mother, uh, Mark's not going to be able to play any more ball. He's not going to be able to run track. So, you know, you're going to have to find something else for him to do. And that's when she got me the guitar lessons. She knew that I loved to hear my name called out on that loudspeaker. <laughs> that was that was Farner number 66 and on the tackle. And I mean, I would go prancing across that field. So anyway, she knew that I needed something that way. So I blame it on her that I got started on a guitar. And here it is two years later, the Holy Rosary kids are coming in and the football coach who kind of was pissed at me because when I quit playing ball, so did about half the team. We just hung together. We were friends. And they said, man, if you ain't playing, we ain't playing. You know, like we'll just hang together. And so he was kind of pissed about that. And as the Holy, Holy Rosary bus pulls up, he looks over at me and I'm standing with like three of my friends around the radiator uh, where the heat was coming out. Um, and that's where we hung out during uh, lunch hour. And uh, he says, Farner, move your boys. And it made me feel like, oh, are you kidding me? These ain't my boys. And I said that to him. I said, I said, mister, these are not my boys. These, these are your students. And he came over. He grabs me by the shirt and he like throws me up against the wall. And my head ricochets off this brass picture frame of the superintendent of schools that was there. <laughs> it, had, it had the light on the top. And I reach back and I feel my head because it was, man, it was hurting like hell. I reach back and I feel, and I go, oh, is that wet? And I, I bring my hand down and I look and there's blood all over my hand. And at that moment, I was so pissed at this teacher that I, bam, I smacked him right in the eye and down he went. And... I had rings on that hand, and when I hit his eye like that, it would, it unzipped his eyebrow, 
and the the skin fell down over his eye. And he was he stood up and he was throwing haymakers at me, but he couldn't see me because he had skin in his eye. And I was ducking, ducking. I was timing it out and I was going to nail him again <laughs> as as I draw back like I'm going to hit him. My friend, Derry Speck, God bless him. He grabs my arm. He says, Farner, you're in so much trouble already. Don't hit him again. Jesus, what's the matter with you, you idiot? You know, and he drags me off. And uh, I go back in front of the school board with an attorney to, to get back in school. And this teacher who had the stitches up in his eyebrow there, uh, he's sitting across the table glaring at me. And the school board is saying, trying to decide whether or not they want to let me back in school. My attorney, and uh, my attorney, he was supposed to have been a friend of the family, but when they mentioned that I had long hair and I was using VO5 to, you know, plaster it back, <laughs> uh, he says, yeah, he does have those long sideburns too. My attorney says this. So I, I was so pissed. Uh, this this teacher who was uh, algebra algebra teacher and football coach, he says, let me tell you something. If you let this kid back in school, I quit. And so I stand up. I said, I'll make it easy on you. And I walk out because they were not going to fire him. Uh, and they were not going to let him go. And I could see the writing on the wall. And so as I'm walking down the road, this attorney pulls up behind me. And then uh, after the traffic went by, he rolls his window down, pulls up alongside me. He says, get in, Mark. Get in. I'll take you home. I said, do you want to look like that algebra teacher? <laughs> I said, if I get in that car, I'm going to punch you in your face. And so he just away he went. And I walked the rest of the way home. I uh, got into summer school. I started doing nights, night school. And it was interfering with my ability to go play music and to make money. And I told my parents, I said, I think, you know, it's more important that I make money now and, and put it together because I got a car. I got a, you know. I got things I got and I need the money for and this school, the schooling is taking it away from me. So, uh, you know, I would like to quit it with your blessings and, uh, and continue in my music. They said, son, you just do what your heart is leading you to do. Wow. Yeah. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. 
There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How'd you go from there to end up working with Terry Knight? What were the steps there? Terry Knight was a DJ, and he started at CKLW in Windsor, Ontario. And then he was working at WTAC in Flint, Michigan, AM stations. And he, uh, he wanted to put together a band because he had written some songs. And Don Brewer and... Uh, Kurt Johnson and Al Pippins, Bobby Caldwell, they were all in the pack. And and Herm Jackson uh, got, the bass player, got drafted. And they said, hey, can you play bass guitar? I said, well, it's got only got four strings and I'm playing a six <laughs> string now. <laughs> I, know. I said, I think I could probably do it. Uh, so I tried out and... I made the band because I could sing. I could do all the harmony parts. And playing bass, it came a little easier for me because I played uh, tuba in the marching band before I got into playing football. So I had that feel, the bass kind of feel. And uh, and it, it just worked out for me. Okay. How many years after you quit school was it before you got into Terry Knight in the Pack? It was two years. And in those two years, you were just gigging with various bands. What was happening? Yeah, I was playing. I played with uh, Dick Wagner and the Bossman. How'd you know Dick Wagner? 
Well, Dick Wagner, uh, of course, I, I would go and see them because they were a fabulous band, and they would come and play the Riviera Terrace in Flint, Michigan, and they would just tear it up, and they were a show band. They didn't just, you know, stand at the microphone and sing. They were all over the stage. They were a show band, and I always admired them for, you know, for what they did, especially Dick for having the ability to write all those songs. Uh, so, uh he asked me, Dick Wagner asked me if I wanted to, to come and uh, join his band and, uh, and play out with him. And I went, wow, <laughs> yeah, it'd be great, man. Are you kidding me? So, in, in fact, uh, my first song that I'd ever written, Heartbreaker, came as a result of one night Dick Wagner and I sat up after a gig that we played in northern Michigan. We sat up in his uh, studio in Saginaw. And we were playing our electric guitars real, you know, not plugged in. Just and and electric guitars are not very loud if they're not plugged in. So his wife and kids are in the other room sleeping, and I he's showing me some chord inversions and and I said, Dick, can you tell me how do you write all of these songs? He says it comes from within, Mark. He says you got it in you. I said I do. He says yeah. He says you can write songs. He goes to bed, I stay up, and I write Heartbreaker. That was my inspiration. When Herm was, uh, Herm Jackson, the bass player of Terry Knight in the Pack, was drafted, it was it was right at, at the end of my uh, run with Dick Wagner and the Bossman. And it, I say the end of it because the keyboard player, Warren Keith, got an uh, opportunity to play with Hank Williams Jr. And uh, what are you going to do? <laughs> you, you're going to go play with Hank. So um, at that time, the band kind of split apart and and Dick Wagner formed um, a different rock band in, in Michigan, uh, The Frost, uh, with, you know, with some great musicians. And... They, uh, the pack, because of Herman's, you know, being drafted, they asked me if I'd come and play bass with them. So, and I, uh, I took to the bass. Uh, I loved playing and uh, singing, but Don and I both thought that either one of us could have sung better than Terry did. And what he, what Terry really had going for him was uh, a gift of gab. He could he could talk to about anybody. And he really had a schmoozing personality. So one night after a gig, and, and Terry wasn't hitting his notes very good, and, and Don and I were just kind of, man, how, why are we doing this? That we were both kind of bummed out because... We, like I said, either one of us could sing better than Terry. Uh, and we were seeing this was just feeding his ego. And he was, he was, you know, blowing up, <laughs> kind of blowing up from it. And uh, so I said, well, you know, why don't we just have the pack without Terry Knight? Brewer goes, I'm in it, dude. I am in it. Let's fire that SOB. <laughs> so 
So we did. We fired them. We said, we're going out as a pack. And we did. We went out as the pack. We went out as the fabulous pack. Uh, where I was just um, stand-up lead singer in the fabulous pack. It was This was just before Grand Funk. And we had Kenny Rich, a guitar player from Canada, Windsor, Ontario. Uh, played with steel picks on his fingers, and he did a lot of this back pick and stuff. And we had Craig Frost uh, on keyboards. And we had Rod Lester on bass, Don on drums, and, of course, myself, stand-up singer. And uh, Delta Promotions, who was doing some of our booking for us, they said, there's an opportunity that's opened up here where we could send you guys out to Boston, but you'd have to play these gigs for free. No money. And we would, they said, we would handle all of your expenses. We'll make sure that you're fed and, you, you know, you're not going to die out there. We'll take care of you. We'll put you up. But you got to do this stuff for free. And we looked at each other and said, well, what the hell? It'll get us out of Flint, <laughs> you know? So we go out to East Sandwich, uh, Cape Cod. We get two of these little cabins on the beach. Uh, and this is the first time us Michigan boys had ever seen an ocean. So we went out and, you know, we're picking up all the starfish and picking up all the seashells. And, oh, man, each one of us had bags of this stuff. And we put them in the crawl space under these little summer cottages that were out there. And then, wouldn't you know it, the worst snowstorm in the history of the world <laughs> hits the East Coast. Oh, my God. In 69 there, it socked it in. The, uh, this little space heaters that they had uh, were not much. It wouldn't, wouldn't heat the whole house. You had to be right next to it to feel any heat. The pipes had all frozen. The All the starfish and things that we were going to take back to Michigan uh, were frozen in ice down in the crawl space. The pipes being frozen, we didn't have a functioning toilet, Brother Bob. Uh, the, you know, no tap water. So we would take a pan, scoop snow, come in and melt it down for drinking water for the water that we used to make our oatmeal, which was the only thing we had for the last week we were there. We didn't have any sugar to put on it. We didn't have any milk or, you know, anything to put in that oatmeal, just oatmeal. Uh, and and then having to melt down the water, uh, you know, the snow to make the water to wash the dishes. And I mean, it was really a pain, even to the point of, you know, each one of us, once in a while, we got to do a number two, right? So uh, we had these this old kitchen chair that didn't have a seat in it. Uh, and that was our little potty. <laughs> we would put a paper bag underneath that with the plastic in the bottom of it and do our thing, roll that paper bag up and go out and bury it in a snowbank. That was it, dude. And thank God for the, the store at East Sandwich, Massachusetts. We didn't have any money to buy anything, but the guy would give us paper bags. 
he would give us a little stack of paper bags and that got us through and don's mother we end up uh using the guy's phone up there when it finally got to where it was working the phones were down i mean there was no communication and we were there for god 10 days you know it was just horrible uh but but don called his mother and she western unioned the money to for us to go rent this van she was a school teacher in swartz creek michigan and she western union the money to us and don you know told her we would pay her back and everything so we got the van we rented uh this is before the credit cards man this was cash so we rented we put all of our equipment in the van came back to michigan we drive up to bay city because we want to give keyhole a piece of our mind we found out that we were getting paid for those gigs $350 a night and back then that was not bad pay for you know garage band three piece uh but uh anyways uh we were in the outer offices and that's when uh we had already determined we were going to do a three piece thing and we're going to go in and tell this guy, Kehoe, uh, that we knew we got paid and we want our money, you know. But during that waiting time in the out in that waiting room there, that's when we heard the bass coming through the wall. I didn't know it was Mel. I didn't know it was Question Mark and the Mysterians in that room playing. But uh, when they took their break and Mel walked out, it was like, wow, oh, Melvin. You know, uh, I told him what we were up to, and he was very much into it, and uh, and the rest is history. Okay, how long until Terry Knight becomes your manager? Why does he become your manager? And what happens before you get to Atlanta when he starts promoting how successful you are? Don Brewer had kept in touch with Terry Knight, and Don Brewer came to the band, and then he confesses, well, I've been staying in touch with Terry. And he says he could do us some good because he's got an apartment in New York City. He's, he's made some friends there. He's got some connections. And uh, I think we should let him manage us. He wants to manage us. And I thought for a minute, I said, he's going to screw us, Brewer. He says, yeah, but it will, at least we'll get out of Flint. <laughs> same old, same old, you know. And I said, well, let's hear what he's got to say anyways. And so he came to Flint. He flew in. We we played him some of the music that we were, you know, I was writing and we were putting together. And he says, oh, this is great stuff. He says, uh, if you got a name yet, we went, no, you know, we've just been playing for, you know, two, three weeks here. Uh, we don't have a name yet. But uh, he says, well, why don't you name your band uh, the name of my song, Grand Funk Railroad? And I thought, well, because the Grand Trunk and Western is an actual railway system that runs between uh, Canada, you know, Ontario, uh, Michigan, and Ohio. Uh 
that that would be a great play off of a, a very familiar name for us Michiganders and the people that are familiar with the railway system. So we adopted that name and uh, the the attorneys for Terry in New York City, Beldock and Kushnick, uh, were doing the legal work for the Atlanta Pop Festival, which was on uh, 4th of July, 1969. It was actually, uh, I think it was the 3rd, 4th, and 5th of July. And they worked a deal with the promoters that were doing, uh, putting it on, uh, so that we could play, because we are Terry's band, that we could open that festival and we would play for free and on all three days of the festival. So when we left Flint, Michigan... Now, how long had the band been together before this happened? Oh, a couple of months. And you played any gigs around town? No, played no gigs. We did play the Hamburg County Fair in New York, up by Buffalo. Uh, that was actually our first gig as a Grand Fork Railroad. And it was in a tent. And the people really loved it. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, all these music that was on the first album. So on our way down to Atlanta, the guy, uh, G. Holland, God rest his soul, he loaned his van. He had a window van, a Chevy window van, and his driver, Jimmy. He loaned to the band, and we rented a U-Haul trailer and put all of our equipment in the back, of the, and we headed to Atlanta. And... When we went through uh, Toledo and we were on the other side of Toledo, um, this was before I-75 was finished. There was a lot of back roads that you had to take, a lot of detours that you had to take and get around. And we were on one of those and it was just breaking daylight and I was riding shotgun and I opened my eyes and I see this sign coming at us, I-75 and the arrows going to the right and I know that Jimmy's going way too fast he ain't even seen this sign so I said Jimmy I-75 goes to the right and he just jerks that wheel I guess he forgot he had a trailer on the back and the trailer rolls down through the dish the, the safety chain snap and it's we were lucky that it didn't flip the van over and you know hurt us but uh, we take all the equipment out of the van or out of the uh, trailer and all the guys got on the other side. We flipped this two-wheel trailer back over on its tires. We load it back up with what we can, you know, see visibly is uh, our equipment is all broken up. The Some of the chassis of the amplifiers, the transformers had ripped completely off the aluminum chassis and the wires were busted and cut and and we just said we'll fix it when we get there so we throw everything in the trailer because we're running a little behind now we go down as we're going down the expressway this tire passes up <laughs> and i look back i look back and there is sparks <laughs> flying out from underneath the trailer i said that's our tire <laughs> 
and it goes bouncing across the expressway uh, over the northbound traffic and just about hits a semi. If it wasn't, if he wasn't been paying attention, it would have went right through his windshield. But uh, it narrowly misses him and goes out into this field. We run down there and retrieve that tire. We take two lug bolts off the other side oh, God. of the trailer. We put it back together. The tire's doing this, Bob. <laughs> you know, it's doing this. But we're only doing like 20 or 15 miles an hour at the most and going right down the shoulder of the expressway. Well, luck would have it. There was a U-Haul trailer place at that first exit. So we make the exchange of the trailer and we get back on the road and we are hauling ass and we get to Atlanta just just a little bit before we're supposed to get on. Open that trailer and here's all this equipment that's all messed up. The speaker cabinets were still in one piece, but the amps were all just, like I said, the, the uh, transformers ripped from the, the chassis. And these guys, we had two roadies that were with us. And they're standing there like going, what the hell are we going to do? And so all these other roadies from uh, 10 years after, uh, from, you know, the 10-wheel drive, uh, a lot of the roadies, I mean, they're just, hey, man, let's put it together. You guys got to get on stage. So you wouldn't believe the work beat that happened in the last, like, 15 minutes. They were soldering wires back together. They sat the transformers up on top of the heads uh it was you know there was a big hole where it used to go so they put them up on top of the heads and they got our stuff up there and it worked they just you know color matched the wires and it worked uh and before taking the stage the only idea of you know the enormity of this crowd was we were looking out between the cracks and the fence and you could see the first few rows. You could see that it was, they were having fun and it was wide. I kept, I kept, I would look down one side, I looked down the other and went, wow, is this a big crowd? But I didn't realize until we walked up and we were 15 feet above this crowd's head. And I looked and it was an ocean of people, an ocean right out to past the front of house, way out to the, horizon it was like just people everywhere 185,000 people I, I believe is the figure and uh I looked over at the at my guitar tech and I said dude you wouldn't believe how bad I got a piss <laughs> he says he says put this thing on man you got work to do with it so we went out we gave him our first album we gave him all that music and uh did for an encore because they they kept calling us back you know they more 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 so uh, the promoter says go you got another one we said yeah we got one more <laughs> so we go back and we give them land of a thousand dances wilson pickett style and during the song i take my guitar off and i throw it over to the tech and i've got this paisley print shirt that i I paid 50 bucks for that shirt, Bob, back then, you know, 50 oh, bucks. Oh, yeah. That was a hell of a lot of money. But it's sticking to me. It's a see-through Paisley print shirt, and it's it's just got me constrained here, you know. Uh, so I said, you know what? 
this this audience deserves this. And I go, <laughs> I ripped the shirt off and those people jumped to their feet and they're going, yeah, you know, like, oh man, this is party time. And I go to dancing and uh, I knew that that really worked. Take, taking the shirt off really worked. And so from that point on, uh, I would go with just a vest on and to take that vest off like uh, the second song, it was gone, you know, and that started, uh, we opened at 12 noon the first day. The second day they put us on at 7 p.m. And the last night of the festival, they had us on 11 o'clock with full lights where we had, and they loved us. The people absolutely loved us. And uh, that was a blessing from God, man. I'm telling you. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Okay, you know, I was in the New York radio market, and what I remember is these radio ads about all these people thrilled in Atlanta, which begs the question, I got to believe that's Terry Knight. Would you have made it without his intense promotion? I don't think so. I mean, it was Terry Knight that had that gift of gab. None of the band did, and those attorneys sure didn't. Uh, It was all that hype. And uh, his ability to convince people uh, that we were going to be big. We were going to do it. Okay, so how'd you cut the first record and how do you end up being the producer? Well, we didn't know any better. We didn't know any producers. We didn't know that uh, your manager didn't produce your records. We were 20 years old, Bob. Mel was 19. (laughs) Don and I were 20. Mel was 19. And... uh, when we got the, you know, we got the idea, well, we better put this, all this together on a record. Terry uh, knew this gal who worked at a bank and she was like, uh, you know, a big uh, to do um, and, and ha- could get him the money that he needed to record us. So we had her come to one of the engagements that we played um, in Ohio and, uh, she saw the band and she decided to finance the recording. And, uh, of course, uh, he paid her back and she, she always come to the gigs whenever we were close enough. And we've, we always had a great relationship with her because of her believing in us and, and Terry getting her to, uh, make that investment, and we recorded at Cleveland Recording. Don Hammond down there had beautiful uh, array. <laughs> he had every microphone uh, known to man, and his whole thing, Don's, was don't EQ the mix on the board. Don't EQ that. We'll get the microphone that that closely fits it so where we don't have to use the EQ. And that cut a lot of the the noise floor out uh and when you got ears like don hammond had oh my god uh he was very critical he could he could pick this stuff up and terry uh you know he produced he he mixed it he pushed the faders up and he but uh don was responsible more uh for the tone of everything and uh and that's where we recorded on an eight-track Scully, buddy. How'd you get the deal with Capitol? It was after the Atlanta Pop Festival. The There was a, a few Capitol representatives there, you know, with the various bands that were on Capitol. And, uh, and Terry came back uh, after the third night. He said, well, you guys... We got some interest. Capitol Records is really interested in you guys. I think I got a deal going. Well, what he did was he made a production deal with Capitol Records and signed us to his uh, Goodnight Productions, his company. He told us that the 6% that we were splitting was more than the Beatles got. So the 2% I got, 2% Don got, 2% 2% Mel got was more than the Beatles got. We didn't know. We're 20-year-old kids. 
we said, wow, that's cool. But we didn't realize that it was a production deal or we, you know, we didn't know anything about that. We thought we were actually signed, uh, you know, somehow to the company. But uh, that's what caused really um, the the breakup between Terry and I and us was it was three years because they had this contract. Terry Knight had us for three years exclusively. And uh, at the end of that three years, we were in New York City. We had just returned from Europe. We did uh, uh, Shea Stadium that summer. Uh, you know, it was a big year for us. And they said, you guys are in uh, in trouble with the IRS. We go, what are you talking about in trouble? We made all kinds of money. Yeah, you made too much money. You you owe over $400,000 to the Infernal Revenue Service. And I go, what? How did this happen? I mean, what? What? who's watching our books? Who's doing us? And he says, well, you know, you, this is the price you pay when you're big. And he says, but this is the attorney speaking. We will loan you that money if you will re-sign oh, another gosh. three-year contract with Terry Knight. And I, I looked at Don and Mel. I said, look, that's a big decision. We ain't just going to make that kind of decision, just standing here off the cuff. They said, okay, you guys stay in here. We'll go in the other room. You talk it over. So they left. They scurried out of there. I said, this is bullshit, you guys. I walk over. I sit down at Bell Doc's desk in his chair. I kick my feet up on his desk and I said, you guys, something in the milk ain't cream. This feels real bad to me. This feels so bad. It's like we've been, we have been screwed here. And as I said that, I sat up and my foot dragged down off the top of the desk and opened that first big drawer that's the, the long, uh, shallow drawer. And here's a copy of the contract between Goodnight Productions and Capitol Records for 16%, Bob. Oof. So I tell Don and Mel, I said, you guys, you're not going to believe this. Come over here. Look at that. And Brewer says, that son of a bitch. Because here, you know, we're splitting 2% each. And then him taking a management commission, he took my publishing. I did, I mean, he was 20 years old. My mom had to sign the contract. So Terry Knight takes my publishing, takes, uh, you know, an enormous amount of money uh, and, ten, and then takes a management commission from the pittance that the band was splitting. And we just, we were boiling at that point. And I said, well, we're just going to tell them we can't make up our mind. We need a week or so to think about this. And so when they came back in, well, I had shut the, the desk door, of course, uh, and I went way across the room so it wouldn't look like I was sitting in anybody's chair. <laughs> and when they came back in, well, what do you get? What do you guys think? I said, we need a week or two to think about this. This is just, this is just mind boggling how this could happen. And, and I, came off as I was pissed off, you know, 
So okay, okay, okay. You know, we'll let you, we'll let you think about that. So then we we left and uh, we got a hold of Eastman and Eastman and John Eastman, of course, uh, his sister uh, Linda well, married Paul McCartney, and uh, he was a big name in in the in the city. And uh, we said, uh, you know, we want to we want to get out of this and. It went to court and we settled out of court. But uh, Terry always told everybody, well, if those guys, you know, would have waited to the end of the contract and then you know, he made up some kind of bullshit, uh, but tried to push the blame of the uh, breaking up between him and the band upon the band. Uh, when really that's the, you know, when you find out some information like that, you don't want to ever see this guy again. And uh, and we didn't. At this late date, who owns the songs? Do you still get paid royalties? What's going on? Terry Knight owned the publishing, Storybook Music. And as you know, the publishing is 50% of the pie. The songwriter takes 50, the publisher takes 50. But I should have been the publisher on all of my songs because I was the one out singing them, promoting them. I wasn't shopping them to other artists to have them uh, consider doing my song where, you know, a, a publisher would have earned his keep if he were to get a, a song covered by a big artist or something. But I was the artist. So anyway, I didn't find this out until later about publishing and about, you know, how bad I got screwed. Uh, but the, when we broke up Eastman, um, the breakup between Terry Knight and, and, and the Grand Funk, Eastman had the wherewithal to think, you know, we're going to have to have your record royalties paid directly to each one of you guys. That way there's going to be no hanky panky. And, uh, you know, Terry Knight's not going to have anything to do with it. We get him completely out of the picture. So to this day, we still get paid the record royalties for record sales and now streaming directly from Capital or uh, I forget what the name of the uh, corporation is that has Capital's old recordings, but uh, it's still paid that way. I get my songwriters. I get my BMI uh, because I I ran all my stuff through uh, broadcast music. Um, but Terry Knight's estate gets all the publishing. There were 16 points in the deal and each band member was getting two. Subsequent to your hiring Eastman, how many did you guys end up with? Well, I don't know what that was i i don't know what uh the final number was i just was trusting eastman to get us the best deal uh i do know that we renegotiated and david fishoff who does rock and roll fantasy camp managed grand funk for one year on our reunion in 96 and we did the bosnia album and uh, we put a wing on the hospital 
in Sarajevo, a children's hospital. Uh, and David negotiated our rate up because no one had ever, uh, you know, bargained for the uh, CDs and, and all the digital stuff uh, that, you know, we were evolving into, into the music industry. All we had back then were records and, and tapes, cassette tapes or eight tracks, you know, when, when we first did our deal. So uh, we did get an update, uh, an upgrade in royalties then, but I can't even tell you what that is. I would just... Let's look at it a different way. Do you have to work to pay the bills or does enough money come in? No, no, I got to work. I have to work. Since Grand Funk broke up, has it been financially good or has it been a struggle? It's not a struggle because I love to play. And as long as I can play, I can pay. Okay, let's go back. The first album comes out. Rolling Stone gives it a terrible review. And certainly for the first couple of albums, the reviews are not positive. How do you feel about that? How did you feel about it then, is what I'm asking. We always thought, what show did they go see? They didn't come and see a Grand Funk show. Uh, they're not giving um, a report of, of how popular we are with the fans. They're just shitting on us because... Part of Terry Knight's whole scheme was to keep us from the press and create a mystique. And that was what he gave, you know, that was the story he gave us. So while we are not doing interviews, uh, Terry Knight has taken that opportunity to tout his managerial, uh, you know, his talents. Right. And, uh, and then with it, Bill Billboard and Cashbox came out uh, in nineteen. I think it was nineteen seventy one. The centerfold is Terry Knight doing this, giving the finger to the world, and he says, "And to all a good night." K n i g h d, you know. And he had this shit eating grin on his face. Um, and that that is. We paid for that attitude. Grand Funk, the guys in the band paid for that attitude that Terry had and that he left a bad taste in, uh, in, the, mouth, in the mouths of the press and those people that wanted to do the interviews with us because he wouldn't let it happen. And, and we, you know, to this day, I believe that is part of why... Uh, you know, we got all the bad rap. So ultimately, Terry Knight's out of the picture. You end up working with Todd Rundgren. How does that happen? Yeah, we drew names out of a hat, buddy. And I'm serious. There was a, you know, Rundgren was one of them because Lynn Goldsmith, our publicist, uh, knew him very well, had worked with him. And she said, uh, man, he'd be great if he's if that's who you pull out of the hat. And it was uh, several other people that we put in a hat. You know, there's probably uh, eight names. And I reach in and I pull out Todd Rundgren. <laughs> and that's it. And that's how Frank Zappa got uh, pulled, too. Uh, we had names in a hat. We pulled a name, Frank Zappa. Okay, let's let's ask them, see if they'll do it. Uh, and Todd was very willing to come out and, uh, and to Michigan and hear us and, and to work with us and see where we were recording and see if he could get it done there. 
And in fact, uh, when Todd was uh, producing, I lived across from the studio, which we lovingly called the swamp. We had to dig a pond there in order to get a perk test to put the building down and have a you know septic system. Uh, but you couldn't see the farmhouse from the swamp because of the woods that we had to go through. And the driveway was kind of like a S and it's dirt. I lived on a dirt road, Partialville Road. And I went home for the for lunch to the farmhouse. And on my way back, it was a beautiful day. The sun was out. The birds were chirping and singing. And I could hear the guys in the parking lot at the studio. I could, you know, hear their conversation a little bit. I could hear them talking. So I start singing. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. And them guys start singing the backgrounds from the parking lot. And and Rundgren comes walking out as I come around the corner. And now I can see the band and the crew. And they're singing. And I'm still singing. And we're singing the locomotion. Rundgren comes walking out of the studio. He said, what the hell is that? I said, what is that? What are you talking about? That's Little Eva. That's the locomotion. He says, well, you guys get in here right now because we're recording the locomotion. We went in. He pushed the button. We went in and he came out to record with us. That's him singing all that high falsetto part in locomotion. We turned it into a party. And when the guitar solo uh, starts, he walks over to my rig, Bob, and he grabbed the head on the echoplex and slid it from one end to the other. It would go, <laughs> it sounded like the guitar was eating itself. And uh, people loved it, man. That was a big hit for us. Number one. Okay, let's go back. I've talked to Todd, and Todd said when he was called that you had new management and were an American band was already written, the song, and he came in and cut it right away. And then it became a hit and then cut the album after. What's your memory of all that? Yeah, he, well, he was the first producer that we felt confident that he could make the records sound like we did on stage, that he could actually put the energy that the band was putting out and the and the sound, you know, the tone, uh, which we never thought Terry Knight did a very good job of replicating what we sounded like on stage on the records, as successful as they may have been. But, uh, but Todd had the magic. He had the musical genius uh, easy for him. And when it is a musical genius, it's, it is easy. They don't have to work at it. And, uh, I recall doing American band. We, we, we did it. We cut it at the, st the swamp, but then we did the vocals at criteria in Miami. And when we finished American band, which by the way, I said to Brewer, man, this song, it needs a cowbell in the worst way. He says, I don't have a cowbell. I said, we need to get one, dude. I'm telling you, I'm hearing cowbell on this. He says, all right, all right, all right. I'll pick one up on the way to rehearsal tomorrow. I said, no, man, pick up six and we'll pick the best one that matches this the chord that we're playing this song. 
So he did that. And, and, and I taught him the drum intro. That is my, I heard that in my head and I said, this is what I'm hearing for an intro. And then we come in, and he goes, man, I can't play. That. Well, I kept encouraging him in the nicest way that he could. I said, you know who you are. You're Don Brewer, dude. You could do this shit. No problem. So uh, we get it done. We rehearse it. We get this thing down and go to rehearse or go to uh, Miami to record. And when we're done with the song, Don, it was at night, Don comes to me and he says, Mark, I've never had 100% songwriter credit on any song. Would you mind if I take it on this song? I said, go ahead. Even though I wrote the music, he didn't write those chord changes. I wrote those chord changes. I did the, the background vocal arrangement and the cowbell and the drum intro. I did. I had a lot to do with that song. That's why he came to me and asked me because any other song prior to that that we had co-written together, he did the lyrics, I did the music. And that's how we worked. I, I didn't try to uh, interfere or, you know, change the lyrics that he was writing. Whatever his ideas were, I wanted him to, you know, finish that. So uh, he's not the 100% songwriter of that song. And anybody that would uh, ask him to go ahead and play it on whichever instrument he wrote it on, they, they would soon find out. Uh, but nevertheless, I have, that's part of my lesson. That's part of my life lesson. And uh, I don't regret it because regret is debt. It's debt consciousness. Okay, you make two albums with Todd, and then you work with Jimmy Einer. How do you end up working with Jimmy, and you have some success there? Well, Jimmy Einer uh, was pulled from a hat, and we knew uh, with the raspberries that he had, you know, had some great sounds, especially vocals. He had a way with vocals, man. And uh, so just working with him, he was, every time I come in the control room, Jimmy had this smile that was like looking at the moon. I mean, you know, it lit up the room. And and he just loved what he was doing. And we worked at the record plant and did, uh, you know, Bad Time to Be in Love there. Oh, my God. He did the vocals. I, I just couldn't believe how it was coming out. And uh, he would have people from, the record plant come up, some of the engineers that were downstairs and the owner, uh, he had her come up and, and they're, he's wanting me to keep singing this song over and over and over again. <laughs> uh, you know, that intro, I'm in love with the girl. And so uh, he just loved that part. And uh, I'm glad that we did it with him because that and some kind of wonderful are probably the the best vocally arranged and uh, the vocal presence uh those two songs of the whole catalog, the Grand Funk catalog. So ultimately, from an outside view, you have an awakening and you become very Christian. Was that something that people didn't know about or was there some significant turning point in your life? Actually, when my dad died, you know, when I was nine years old, 
I walked into the living room. My dad had just purchased our first television set. Uh, prior to the TV, we used to listen to the radio. We had a big wooden radio, you know, like a 12-inch speaker, and would listen to the Lone Ranger and the Flash Gordon and Creek and Dory, all this stuff. And, and all the cousins would be around the speaker. We'd be eating, you know, popcorn in these grocery bags, big, huge bags full of popcorn and they're grease soaked from the butter, you know, and, and we're just, our imaginations are going like crazy listening to Flash Gordon and the Lone Ranger and all this. Uh, so when we got the TV, my dad was very proud that he could get that for us. Uh, and then he died like a week later. So I walk in uh, out of the dining room where my mother and my aunts and uncles, my grandma and grandpa, uh, they were all just crying. They were, they were sobbing and it was just a lot of voices that were hurting, hurting. And I walked into the living room where the TV was on kind of faint. And I looked over and Billy Graham was doing a crusade in Flint, Michigan. He was at Shea, or Shea, yeah. He was at uh, the stadium. What the heck is the name of that? Yankee Stadium? No, 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 no. No, this was in Flint, Michigan. Oh, God. Honey, actually, what was it? Silverdome? I don't know. Anyways, he was there, and it was packed. And uh, as he's telling, you know, I'm walking in, and he's telling the people, if you need a touch from God, if you are hurting, if there's pain in your life, and I'm I'm going, damn, he's talking to me, <laughs> you know. I walked up to the TV, and he says, I want you to pray with me. And I'm looking right into his eyes. He says, put your hand on the television set. I reach up, and I put my hand on a television set. And I receive Jesus Christ as my savior, I confess it with my mouth. I'm nine years old. I'd been to church a few times, but you know, on Easter with my great grandmother, you know, or some other special holiday. It wasn't a every week, every, you know, Wednesday, Sunday thing. It was just every once in a while. But when I prayed, I felt a peace come over me an actual, you know, nine years old, I can still remember that piece. And it's, that piece is part of who I am now. But I went on, you know, I was a big star in Grand Funk Railroad, uh, you know, rock and roll icon, what have you. And when I married Lisa, 1978, uh, she's the love of my life. And to let's be 1982 so four years into our marriage we have two of the three boys that we had together but uh jason and joseph were at the house i come home from the studio and there's a note uh that she's she's left she's gone she's leaving me boom and the, the kids were over at my sister-in-law's. So I went over and I tried to play like, you know, oh, she's, she'll be coming back anytime, blah, blah, blah. 
Well, after that, after the first few days, man, I, I started going to church. I'm looking for God. I, I walk into this one, the first church I go into, it's like hellfire and brimstone and all this bullshit. And I went, I said, nah, God ain't here. And I walk out, you know, I walk in and part of my test, Bob, was I put on my Hawaiian shirt, faded blue jeans uh, with holes in the knees and my sneakers. And I got a headband on and my long hair hanging down. I'm kind of hippified. I say, you know, part of it is if they can get past this, <laughs> I might listen to them, you know, uh, and that was part of the test for me. And then I got into this other one, other church. Uh, I went to one on Wednesday. I went to one on Friday. I went to one on Sunday. I'm looking for God. And finally, I got into this little church where nobody knew who I was. Uh, these old ladies, I mean, older ladies, uh, came up to me. Hello, son. How you doing? Welcome to the church and blah, blah. And they're hugging me. And I, I felt like, are these people for real? Wow. This is really kind of what I need, you know. Then the pastor gets up there, Pastor X. He was uh, 84 years old, preaching on the institution of marriage according to God's work, uh, how people walk out the front door of the church and they leave the commitment that they've made, this holy matrimony. They leave it behind when they walk out the front door of the church and they're just off, you know, doing their life. And they, and the the testament and and uh, what brought them together in the first place and to, to that point gets left in the church. And that's why marriages fall apart. And it was, man, it was like this guy had a gun and he, and he was shooting me with this gun. <laughs> he had no blanks in that gun. And it's like, I'm thinking, he singled me out. He knows I got trouble. And he gives an altar call and I go up there I scurried up there and I said, I told him the story. I said, my wife left me. I said, I, I gave my life to Jesus back when I was nine, but I, you know, I've been involved in all this worldly stuff. I'm not really, you know, a church goer or anything. I said, but man, I want my wife back. He says, uh, well, I understand it, you know, sonny. I said, well, can you pray with me to get her back? He says, I'll tell you what I'll do, son. You pray and I'll agree. <laughs> so I prayed. I said, God, I want my wife back. I want her back. I I want to have my life with her. I want to have the mother of my children. And uh, I'm crying, you know, I'm, and I just, just like I just said. And he agreed. He said, I'll, I agree on touching that prayer in Jesus' name. And uh, I found out my wife gave her life to Jesus that same day, 50 miles away in another city uh, that morning. And uh, so we got back together two, uh, two days, maybe three at the most. And we've been solely sold out to each other. And, uh, and we've allowed that love to be real and to hold on to it and to, uh, I esteem my wife to be equal with myself, Bob. Um, 
uh, how could you love somebody with everything you are? And I believe this is what we have to do as men, that we have to give all of ourselves to that relationship, reckless abandon. Uh, you got to give yourself to love and then it'll come back to you. And and that's the way we've played it. And for 44 years now, it's working. Okay, so family is the most important thing. But Grand Funk Railroad, what do we know? The songs still stay alive. In the beginning, you said, well, you would like to get together with the other two for the fans. Yeah. But how do you feel about the legacy of Grand Funk Railroad? Do you think you've gotten the due? You know, there's always the question of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, whether that's an institution that has any gravitas or not. But how do you feel about it all these years later? Well, I feel like the in the hearts of the true fans, they know uh, who I am because I wrote 92% of that music. And my songs are, I am who my songs say I am. They are a testimony to my life, to my belief, to my love, to my convictions. And I can leave this world knowing that and pretty, pretty happy guy. I would love to have that band entertain the fans, the true uh Grand Funk fans. Just from that point of view, I was sharing earlier, Bob, about me being a Beatle fan, and I wanted to see, you know, the the four dudes up there. I wanted to see them. I wanted to feel that magic. I wanted to be there. And uh, I think that there's a lot of fans that would still really like to see the original three guys get up there and do it. But it's my feelings are not shared. So um, the way it stands is I just have to keep telling myself and reassuring myself that uh, at least my willingness and my uh, trying, you know, my efforts to put the band back together for the sake of the fans is good enough. To, it's good enough for me. It has to be. Uh, I'm not going to let it uh, become a burden to me because that would put me in debt, brother. <laughs> okay, but meanwhile, you're working and you work with your band. You also work solo acoustic. Uh, so how do you decide which show to do and how often do you work? I do them all. <laughs> Anything that comes along, as long as I can pay my guys and pay my airfares, Oh, I do them all. I love to perform. I love it when people call my name out. I love it when my name was called out on that loudspeaker and I was prancing across that football field. I love it when people holler out from the crowd. We love you, Mark. We love you, Mark. I love you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. It's so gratifying to... uh I wish people could know this. I wish every person could know how it feels to truly be uh, a brother to many people. Bada bing, on that note, we're going to leave it at that. You know, Mark, it's really, it's just fascinating. You know, I've seen the band and to talk to you, 
gives me a lot of insight that I didn't have. And I think my listeners will feel the same way. And there are a lot of people who love you and love your music. You know, it's funny because certainly we're an American band, phenomenal track and closer to home, you know, I'm your captain. Mm -hmm. But when I hear some kind of wonderful, you know, come out of the speakers, it just does something for me. I I pull it up, you know, on the streaming service, you know, it's just got that exuberance. And, you know, that lives on, you know, after 50 years of bullshit, you hear that and you go, wow. Thank you. I appreciate those words, my friend. I appreciate that encouragement. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsitz. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.